Hello, my name is Larry Hiles. I'm the preaching minister at the Milford Church of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to this message. Please feel free to share it with friends. Also, if it's impacted your life in any way, reach out to us and let us know how. If you live in the Cinnaburg or Mount Vernon area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 3648 Johnstown Road in Cinnaburg, Ohio. We look forward to the opportunity of meeting you. This morning, I'm going to talk about the place of baptism for men becoming a follower of Christ. So here's my goal. My goal is to show you from God's word that baptism is necessary for salvation for the one who places their faith in Jesus Christ. My goal is to show you from God's word and from history that for the first 1,500 years of the history in the church, this was an agreed upon doctrine until one individual came in. My goal is for us to erase as much as we can everything that we've been kind of pre-programmed to think about this issue of baptism and simply to allow God's word to speak. I'm going to use a lot of scripture today. If you look in your bulletin on the back of the outline, I have those scriptures listed. If you're following along on the YouVersion app or you don't have that downloaded, it'll be left up there for five days. You can search for the Milford Church of Christ if you can't find us, but if you got your location services turned on, we'll be the first one that pops up. And all those scriptures are there. This is not going to be like a typical sermon for me. A typical sermon uh, is, uh, there are points, there are some points that I'm going to make. Uh, but today's sermon is going to be more like a Bible study. More like a Bible study. We're gonna, we're, we're, we are going to take a deep dive into God's word for an important doctrine for us to grab a hold of as followers of Christ. So are you ready to get started? So uh, when God's people were at the foot of Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt, God spoke these words to Moses uh, to give to the people of Israel. Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which Yahweh had commanded him. The response of the people of Israel is truly amazing. Look at verse 8. And all the people answered together. All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words to the people. And just a few chapters later, the people of Israel are going to say something similar to that. In chapter 24, verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant after he'd written down so many things. And he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said again, they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. The people of Israel proved this to be a lie. They would turn their back on God's word and on God himself. They would worship idols. They would forsake the commands of God and they would be divided into two nations. They would be scattered to other nations and, and God would eventually restore them. And all because, all because they failed to do what they claimed they would do. God spoke and they said, we will do what God commands us to do. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask a couple of questions. What matters most when it comes to faith? I mean, faith is the buzzword that we talk about when it comes to this. What matters most? Is faith what you believe in your head and feel in your heart? Or, or is faith what you do? That, that's a question that we have to grasp and understand and come to an understanding of this morning. I believe it's a combination of both. The Bible tells us. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not 
of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Many years ago, many years ago, in one of my initial classes at Summit Theological Seminary, uh, when they, they were talking about the doctrine of salvation, uh, it was the, one of the best lessons that I ever had, and it's the one that I remember the most. That's how I know it was the best. And this is what it was. It says, this is what salvation is. God provides for salvation through his grace. Man partakes of salvation through his faith. That there are two aspects of that. So what is faith? Is faith merely declaring that we believe God and, and even declaring that we will be obedient to him? Uh, this is what many have made faith. Faith is this mental acknowledgement of a few truths. And as long as we have this mental acknowledgement of a few truths and then confess with our mouth that, that Jesus is Lord, then, then really our obedience doesn't matter. And not only is that seen in areas such as baptism, but it's seen in, in so many other aspects of life as well. Our faith has to become more than a public confession. Our faith has to become more that we point to and just as a, as a point or a, a belief that it's a get out of hell free card. Our faith has to change the way we act. A follower of Christ must know that when they come to God's word, there's a wholehearted devotion that is required to what God reveals. James chapter 2. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith, my faith by what I do. Man, I don't believe it could be any clearer there. There's an aspect of us that when we come to God's word, there are things that we are to become obedient to as followers of Christ. If you come to his word and you find a clear command that one who places their faith in Christ, will you submit to it? Will you allow God's word to be your sole source of authority? Not, and here, here's the challenge. And friends, please understand, I understand that that's a challenge for those of us that call ourselves part of the restoration movement as well. So the challenge that I'm speaking for others, we have to be willing to speak into ourselves as well are we willing to remove our christian background our systematic theologies and just go to god's word are we willing to allow this to be the dividing line for us as followers of christ this has to become the dividing line it must become the dividing line will we like the people of israel just speak with our mouths that all the lord commands will do and then not do it or when we come to it will we submit my goal is to take a deep look at Acts 2, 37 through 41 and supporting passages to show that the biblical response to grace is indeed putting our faith in Christ. It's putting our faith in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. And by our faith, there are things that we will do. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here, to be in your word, and to walk out of here differently. Lord, may your spirit guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Time does not permit us to go back and look at chapter 1 of, uh, of the book of Acts or the first 36 verses in full of chapter 2. So let's take a 30,000-foot view of that. Jesus died. He was buried. He resurrected from the grave. He spent 40 days with the 11 remaining disciples. Remember, Judas was a traitor, and he hung himself, so there were 11 disciples remaining. He gathered his disciples together on the Mount of Olives just before ascending into heaven, and he spoke these words to them. These are the words he spoke. He said, all authority has, uh, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, now we get something similar from our, our brother Luke when he writes this in the first chapter of the book of Acts. 
Jesus speaking to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. These men, these men stayed in Jerusalem. They prayed together for 10 days. And on the day of Pentecost, they were gathered together in an upper room and they were praying. And a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the room and tongues of fire rested over them. And then these men, these these apostles, Matthias being added to them at this time, they went out into the streets and they began to preach Christ. And people heard them speaking the gospel message in their language. And then Peter stood up and he preached the very first sermon on this side of the cross. More importantly, the very first sermon on this side of the empty grave. And here's what that sermon was. Peter told them that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they were seeing was a fulfillment of of prophecy from Joel 2, that the last days were upon them. Peter told them that Jesus was a a man proven to them by miracles, a man they crucified, that God raised from the dead. Peter even showed them that King David pointed to the Messiah. And look at Peter's conclusion, verse 36 in in Acts chapter 2. He says simply, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he didn't shy away, right? He, he laid the truth down for them. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? What should we do? You know what I find amazing here is that, is that Peter doesn't respond with maybe what you would hear some people respond to today. Well, there's nothing you really can do. God's already done it all for you. Just believe and everything will be okay. No, Peter doesn't respond that way. Peter, he proclaimed Christ, the Holy Spirit. He did his job. He brought about conviction. And we focused in on that last week that the Holy Spirit brings conviction. See John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. Their conviction of sin moved them to ask the question, brothers, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? You know, it often sounds spiritual to say there's nothing you can do. Just believe. That's the spiritual sounding thing that's there. And at first glance, it's right there for us to grab a hold of. Let this moment sink in for a few seconds here, though. Remember the gravity of this moment. Remember the fact that Jesus died, was resurrected, and this is that first message preached. Uh, From the time of the fall of the Garden of Eden, humanity was awaiting the one. They were awaiting the one that would come and erase the curse from back in Genesis 3.15 when it was promised, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her, her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You'll notice that Peter does indeed have a response. But before we get to that response and the words that come out of Peter's mouth, let me ask you a question. I think it's a vital question for every follower of Christ or everyone who wants to follow Christ to be able to answer. Well, we... State before it state before he says it, all the Lord has said, we will do. Or have we already predetermined that no matter what comes next, we have our systematic theologies in place. We have the history behind us in place. So it doesn't matter what God's word says. I know what it means. Will we determine? And look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent 
and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter gives us here two commands that have two promises with it. Two commands with two promises. And here's the first command. He says, repent. Mike did an amazing job speaking about repentance last night. Right? He did an amazing job. You know what's amazing about repentance? You know the only thing that's necessary for repentance to be necessary? It's sin. That's the only thing that's necessary for us to have the need to repent. And we know what Scripture tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that every single person fits into that realm. I even like the visual lessons that Mike gave us last night about repentance with the, the sign language. He said, you know, this is the letter C in sign language. And, and if you flip your hand like that, that just means change. And this is the letter R in sign language. And if you flip your hand like that in sign language, that means repent to change. Here, Peter is looking at these men who realize their sin, and he calls for them to turn away from their sin and to turn toward God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is so key toward Christianity that both John the Baptist, and this is what I love, just go back and start reading Scripture and let it speak to you, right? Because when John the Baptist began preaching, do you remember what he said? Repent. When Jesus began speaking, his very first words out of his mouth, when, when he preached his first message, do you know what it was? Repent. I mean, this is the agreed upon thing in Christianity. I don't think you'll find any circle in Christianity that will tell you repentance isn't necessary for salvation. Every single circle in Christianity will point to the fact that you need to repent of your sin if you want to be a follower of Christ. But what about when we come to passages of Scripture where repentance isn't mentioned? Do we need to repent? Think about it this way, Romans chapter 10. Famous passage. I find it interesting, though, when you dig into it in context, right in the middle of Jesus, or Paul talking about the Jewish problem, he gives us these verses. I think we need to study them in, those, in that context before we take it into salvation, but we use them for salvation all the time. Romans chapter 10. Beginning of verse 9, that, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth conf he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that passage say anything about repentance? No. No, it doesn't. I, you'd have to do some digging and some theological high jumping to find it in there. But it doesn't. So does that mean we don't repent? No, repentance is a godly sorrow that causes us, one, to turn away from sin and turn toward God. It's a necessary step of faith. Remember that word, a necessary step of faith for the sinner to be brought into right relationship with Christ. And then Peter declared, repent and each of you be baptized. So the word baptized means this, to dip, immerse, or plunge. Uh, this was often connected to the Great Commission. Uh, remember, this is connected to the Great Commission in which Jesus spoke to his disciples. We read that a few minutes ago. To go and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? And they were told to teach as well. And after preaching this message, when asked what to do, there were two commands, repent and be baptized. See, there are many who take the words of Peter here and declare that he was speaking of a 
spirit baptism. And there's some theological jumping that goes on here. Oftentimes, when you hear people talk about two different kinds of baptisms, actually just open up Scripture and let it speak, because Ephesians 4 clearly tells us there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. So, the, so we have to let Scripture speak. So, so Peter here, he cannot mean spirit baptism here, because at the beginning of chapter 2, they received the spirit baptism. That was something that just came upon them, not something that they could follow in a command, right? None of us can manifest something from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives that. And so why would Peter declare us to obey something that we can't bring upon ourselves? So he can't mean spirit baptism here. In his book, Baptism, A Biblical Study, Jack Cottrell shared three reasons this had to be water baptism. I just shared one of them with you. Peter was speaking of the baptism connected to the Great Commission. This was something the disciples were to administer, not the Spirit. The baptism prescribed by Peter was something that sinners themselves were to do, right? to submit themselves to it. A purely spiritual baptism would have been God's initiative. And third, Peter's language here would have immediately called his audience mind to the baptism of repentance by John. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Look at that word there. For, hold on to that word, the forgiveness of sins. See, when it comes to the miraculous Holy Spirit baptism of Cornelius and his household in chapter 10, read it in context and see what happens after that because so many people ask me, but wait a minute, preacher, didn't... Cornelius and his household received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized, yes. But did you notice right after that, Peter said, commanded for them to be baptized. It was a command. And so these men, they were cut to the heart. They realized their sin. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? And he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And in, in the name of means into by the authority of a submission of one who is being baptized. It's a submission of one who's being baptized. This brings to mind the words that Jesus spoke again there in Matthew 28. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And from that authority, I'm saying this to you. So Jesus, the creator of all things, lived a life that we could never live, died a death that we deserve to die, resurrected from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death. And, and, and therefore, God, the father has placed all things under his authority. And so we're baptized into that authority. So when Peter declared be baptized in the name of Jesus, that's what he was speaking of here. And in, in essence, this is what it means. It's a faith step. It really is a faith step. It's a trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. It's trusting in him. So what is the efficacy of this baptism? Look at what it says in 2.38. Repent and each of one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jack Cottrell and others, not just Jack Cottrell, he's kind of coined the term, but other theologians talk about a double cure that takes place here. And the first one is this, forgiveness of sins and then the regeneration that comes upon you through the Holy Spirit. So you repent, here are the promises, and here's what you get. You repent and are baptized, the first thing it says, for the forgiveness of sins. When it comes to this verse, much of the Christian world is divided over one of these words in there. Do you know what that word is? Does anybody know what that word is? Which word is it? For. 
The, the Christian world is divided over that word for. And here's this division. When, when Peter spoke these words, is he declaring that you're baptized because your sins are forgiven? Or is he declaring you're baptized in order to have your sins forgiven? That's the, that's the divide over Christianity. And, and once again, we have to allow God's word to speak. And, and when you do a little bit of digging into lexicons, which biblical dictionaries, you'll find clearly you can do these things yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Well, go to your Strong's Concordance or, or BibleHub.com and begin to look these things up. Depending upon your lexicon, there are at least 1,773 times in the New Testament this small word for is used. It's the word ice in Greek. And there are only four times that it could possibly mean because of. Just four times possibly it could mean that. The rest of them, it, it has a direct correlation to what's being spoken about, like in Matthew 26, verses 27 through 28. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, this Jesus talking about the Last Supper, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, do you see it? For forgiveness of sins. So is Jesus going to pour his blood out because sins are forgiven or in order to have sins forgiven? I don't know about you guys, but when it comes to the division of the body of Christ over this issue, I wonder, when did it happen? That was a question that I took to this. When did it happen? How is it possible for this division to be there? Because like my friend Joel here, when we talk a lot, things should be a lot simpler than this. We shouldn't have some of the questions that we have. We should all be able to come to this book and trust the Holy Spirit to lead us to the same place. So, so when did it happen? And, and like I mentioned earlier, for the first 1,500 years in the church, there was agreement. Some of these names you might recognize. Justin Martyr. He was a second century leader. He explains the process and place of baptism in the second century. He said that new converts were to be instructed to fast and pray. They are, then they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated. For they receive the washing with water. He quotes John chapter 3, 5 where Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit in relation to this practice stating that we have learned from the apostles this reason in order that we may obtain in the water the remission of sins. Another theologian, Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century. He's a good example. He says for, for him baptism gives salvation by the power of God. He succinctly states, when going down into the water, think not of a bear, the bare element, but look for salvation by the power of the Holy Ghost. And, and he would write, great is the baptism that lies before you, a ransom to captives, a remission of offenses, a death of sin, a new birth of the soul, a garment of light, a holy and indissoluble seal, a chariot to heaven, the delight of paradise, a welcome into the kingdom the gift of adoption maybe you've heard of this name augustine augustine was also a fourth century theologian for him it was wrapped up in three words baptism efficacy power and necessity in regards to efficacy uh, augustine does not deviate from those who were before him he saw it as the point where god works salvation and brings about regeneration uh, for the soul regarding the power of baptism uh, where does the power of salvation come from? From the act of baptism itself. He says, no, it is from God alone. 
He too points to John chapter 3, verse 5. Out of the, of the necessity of baptism, Augustine is quite emphatic and almost absolute when he says baptism is necessary for salvation. And he writes, Apostolic tradition by which the churches of Christ maintain it to be inherent an inherent principle that without baptism it is impossible for any man to obtain to salvation and everlasting life. Now that's the first four centuries. Let's jump ahead a few centuries and come to a name that most of us will recognize, Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a man that has said to be the father of the Reformation. And, and when he nailed his 95 thesis to the wall and he created that separation from the Catholic Church, many people believe that Martin Luther is the founder and the father of the faith-only doctrine. But the fact is he's not. He's not. Luther wrote this, what gifts or benefits does baptism bestow? It affects the forgiveness of sins. The, for, the forgiveness takes place through God's covenant. And do you notice how all these guys keep pointing to the same thing? They're not pointing to themselves. They're not pointing to the water. They're not pointing to the response of the sinner. They're pointing to God. Every single one of them. The forgiveness that takes place through God's covenant, through baptism, he, the one, is bathed in the blood of Christ and is cleansed from his sin. He's even more forceful with this statement. He says, holy baptism has been purchased for us by the same blood which Christ shed for us and with which he paid for our sin. This blood with its merit and power, he has deposited in baptism so that men attain it there. For the person who is receiving baptism in faith is in effect actually being visibly washed with the blood of Christ and cleansed from his sin. For Luther, baptism not only forgave sins, but it brought new life. Now, I shared with you, there, there's so many others more I could have shared, and I thought... People are going to get bored just listening to what all these guys said. Here's why I shared this. It's not because of what they believe that we need to gather as being the most important. That they, men like us, were able to go to their Bibles and read and allow God's word to shape their view of how one enters into a relationship with Christ. So here's what we've learned so far, right? We have learned that baptism and teaching the disciples is how you make disciples, uh, we've learned that at first mention here in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection of Christ, when asked, what shall we do? Baptism is mentioned. When you study the rest of God's word, and you'll have these scriptures in your bulletin. When you study the rest of God's word, here's what you see. All right, Paul, in sharing his testimony, he wrote, now why, Ananias speaking to him, now why you delay? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. The Apostle Paul spoke those words. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, we see that baptisms related to the burial and resurrection of Christ. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. The Bible tells us that we are clothed with Christ at baptism. For all who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The Apostle Peter, he writes these words. Corresponding to that, baptism, he's pointing back to Noah. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal. Listen to what he says. This is important. It's not the act itself. It's not the act itself, but an appeal of God, of a good conscience to God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and power have been subjected to him. See what it is? It's a faith step. It's a trust step. 
Not in yourself, but what in God does. Perhaps one of the most powerful defenses of the, of the place and efficacy of baptism is found in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, speaking of Christ. And in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And the removal of the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith. There's that word faith again. And the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your transgression and uncircumcision of your heart, he made alive with Christ, having graciously forgiven given us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, what does God's word say? I do think it's important sometimes to get what other men say, but, but as we come to what men say, we've got to understand they can be just as fallible as we are, but God's word is not fallible. God's word is perfect. It can be trusted, and it will lead us in the right place. So what we've learned, baptism is a work of faith, and this work of faith points us to Jesus Christ, just like every other measure of faith. And when you read through God's word, you come to the passages of scripture that deal with salvation. Pay attention to what's mentioned and what's not mentioned. And then ask yourself this question. Why does most of the Christian world only seek to erase one response of faith from our response to accepting Christ? We never erase confession of faith. We never erase repentance. We never erase believing in Christ. We never erase living the Christian life. But for some reason, for some reason, much of the Christian world wants to take baptism out of the equation to say it's not necessary. I remember George Fall listening to those tapes on my way back and forth to Simmons Company. His booming voice, if you'd ever heard him speak, say it's no wonder that Satan wants to remove that because that's the place that the blood of Christ is applied right there so we can learn from these men but we have to go to god's word first because if we seek to learn from men we can be confused by other men I, i've told you for and I, I this is kind of a history lesson too but it's important for us there was another theologian this is the guy that's responsible you can go put his picture up uh, so he's, he's a good looking dude right <laughs> every picture that they painted of him he's mad so uh but this guy's name is ulrich zwingli he was a Swiss theologian. He was a contemporary with Martin Luther. He had so much to write about communion and baptism. I could have bored you with so many quotes. Uh, but just know this. Ulrich Zwingli, was, him and Luther were trying to break away from the Catholic Church at the same time. It's actually Ulrich Zwingli that we can consider to be the founder and the father of the modern faith-only movement. He, he, the Reformed theologians will point to him. Uh, and so he wanted to break away from the Catholic Church so bad that he made so many mistakes when it came to the two sacraments that we point to, communion and baptism, and the Catholic Church pointed to, communion and baptism, that he threw the baby out with the bathwater. Time does not permit uh, to write much of what he declared, but understand that. And look at what he did write about baptism. And this is one of those things you might not be able to see up on the screen uh, what it says, but here's what he did write 
Man, this is one of the most arrogant statements that I think any theologian could ever make. As a matter of fact, if I were sitting in a class or somebody in a Bible study that would state something like this, I would probably get up and walk out. This is how arrogant this statement is. In this matter of baptism, if I may be pardoned, he even asks for a pardon before he states it. For saying it, I can only conclude that all the doctors have been in error from the time of the apostles. All the doctors have ascribed to the water a power which it does not have, and the holy apostles did not teach. And from this place of apostasy, that's where we got the divide in the church. For the first 1,500 years, the church saw this issue as one. Zwingli would teach that baptism was a work of man. He would make it like a law in essence, one is not saved by the law. They're saved by grace through faith. And if you're counting on baptism, then you're not saved. And I, you know, that's where I'll say, I kind of agree with you there, Mr. Zwingli. But in a roundabout way. It, it's, it's the object of my faith that saves me and my response to the object of my faith and what he commands. So I would love to have a conversation. It would have been great to sit down with Mr. Zwingli and ask him a conversation when he would start to say things like this. And I would simply ask, what about Acts 2.38? What about Romans 6.3-4? What about Galatians 3.27? What about 1 Peter 3.21? What about Colossians 2.9-14? Uh, Mr. Zwingli, can you define what a work is? Please define to me what a work is. And if you ask anybody that, by definition, isn't a work something you do? It's something you do. I'd like to ask Mr. Zwingli another question when we, when we come to that understanding. How do you determine what work of faith is required and which one's not? I mean, after all, aren't you the one repenting? It's a work. Aren't you the one confessing Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life? That's a work. Aren't you the one chasing after holiness? That's work. So how is baptism any more of a work than those are? So how is submission to the command of baptism for the forgiveness of sins left out of believing, confessing, and repenting? With all due respect, Mr. Zwingli, I must obey God rather than you. And we need to have that attitude every time we come to any theologian. Every theologian, including me, please, please study the Bible. If you want to talk about this afterwards, I would love to sit down and talk with you. And for many years, you know, this was one of those issues that, that I struggled with. I struggled with, right? And I remember April asking me many years ago when we made a change in our life. She said, hey, what's going to happen a few years from now when you realize you're wrong? <laughs> I love her, but sometimes I don't like her. <laughs> you know, do you remember what I said, April? I don't know if you remember. I said, well, then I'll repent and start teaching the right way again. So, so what did Peter declare? Repent and be baptized. Each, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So not only do we do receive forgiveness, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I see what time it is. I wish I had all afternoon. I think how this, this is that important. I've spent a great deal of time over the past couple of weeks talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. You can go back and find those messages on our website or our Facebook page. But quickly, in your bulletin, I put these passages down. Please study this week. And if you don't have time to study all of them, just go to Romans 8. Go to Romans 8 and read it. 
you know, pray about it, let it sink in. But, but through the Holy Spirit, we bear fruit, Galatians 5.22. Through the Holy Spirit, we put the death and misdeeds of the body, Romans 8.12 through 13. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we're children of God, Romans 8.15. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness of prayer, Romans 8.26. The Holy Spirit, and I am going to read these verses, brings life from death. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also do what? Give life to your mortal bodies. To the spirit who dwells in you. So when we're baptized, according to that first verse there that mentions it, we receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's so much in that gift that we see here. So who's the promise for? Last question. And look at Acts chapter 2, verses 39 through 41. Peter declaring to those listening, This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then, verse 41, those who had received his word were what? Baptized, And that day they were added, there were added about 3,000 souls. Those who put their faith in Christ submitted to obedience to these things. Faith is obedience. Faith is a willingness to allow God's word to have the sole primary place in your life. And that when we come to it and we see it, that we declare all the Lord has said we will do, and then we actually do it. So this morning, do you know faith? Do you know by faith that you're a sinner who needs the guilt of sin removed? That Jesus died for your sins, resurrected, defeating the power of sin and death. That you need to put your trust, your belief in him uh, and the finished work of the cross that he had in place of your sins. That you respond to that faith and repent. Right To stop walking away from God and destruction and your sin and rebellion and turn around walking toward God. To re- need, that you need to respond in your faith, confessing Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. And that you need to respond in faith and submit to Christian baptism for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, friends. If you know these things and haven't done them, why not? Why not? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of grace you give us in Christ. For the opportunity that we have to respond to you in faith. God, help each of us to know that the faith that we profess is not the idol that we cling to. The faith that we profess is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's done everything for our behalf. And that as we look to the cross, understanding that his blood was indeed poured out for the forgiveness of sins, including our own, we repent. We confess him to be the Lord of our lives. We surrender ourselves 
We surrender ourselves to, to baptism. And, and what your word says, this is your work, Lord, that we surrender to. And then we raise up and walk out in the newness of life. God, if that's a decision that we have not made, help that decision to be made today. Help us to pass from death to life through Jesus Christ. Lord, we just thank you that we even have the opportunity to do so. We pray these things in your son's most holy name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. And friends, if you need to respond in any way, please do. I told you last week that I was going to fill the baptistry up. So, and the baptistry is filled up. And um, here in, the few, in a few moments, we are going to get a chance to celebrate with one individual that's made that decision. But maybe today that's a decision you need to make. And you think, oh, I didn't bring any clothes. The sun's out. You won't be that cold walking out of here. Your car seat will dry. If it's a decision you need to make, why not? Let's stand and sing together.